Hello and welcome to episode 52 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. I'm Rod Murray. Good to have you along for the ride as we adjust the headlamps and prepare to venture into the unexplored darkness that is the giant underground cave of golf. How do you feel about that? I'm wondering how early you got in here this morning I, I to woke prepare up, that. I, w- I woke up early this morning. Uh, indeed, the dulcet tones of Adrian Lake. He'll be along in a minute. Now, since the professional game returned from its brief COVID hiatus earlier this year, it's crossed my mind more than once what life must look like from inside the tournament bubble. And today we're going to find out because friend of the pod and esteemed golf writer John Huggan will make his second visit in four weeks, having just returned from what was, it has to be said, a pretty eventful Scottish Open. Huggy with us momentarily to talk about that. But first, time to bring in my erstwhile co-host and grammar Nazi, Adrian Logue. Logue, good of you to join I here in the studio. It doesn't make sense, does it? I, I see what you did there. Yeah. Hold your fire, because <laughs> me will explain that shortly. Before that, welcome. Sure you're looking forward to chatting with Huggy today as much as I am. I, I am, yep. Yes, indeed. We might get Huggy to adjudicate on this grammar conundrum, but before we do that, we must say welcome and publicly note our appreciation for his attendance. Huggy, welcome. Thanks for staying up late again. It's uh, not a problem. It's, it's actually not too late. You're you're now 10 hours ahead of me at the moment, um, so it's only just after 9pm here in my oh, world. Okay. Oh, okay. nice. Oh, we could have, oh, we could have pushed you, it an hour. Get you more. could have had another sleep in <laughs> and got you to stay up till 10. Now, Huggy, before we come to life in the bubble and the joyless experience it appears to be from the outside... I want you to adjudicate on something. Last week, we had Jeff Mingay on the show, and I tweeted out when I released the show, uh, is Jeff Mingay ready to accept the burden of responsibility for golf's future? Not quite, but he has lots of interesting stuff about to say about the game in episode 51 of the Good Good Golf Podcast with me and Adrian Logue. Now, Logue hit back with a tweet that simply said, Adrian Logue and I. I reckon he's mm. wrong. Where do you stand on this, me, I? Well, I, uh, you've probably mistaken me for someone who cares. But, um, <laughs> I, I, if I was, you know, colloquially, I would go with the me. Um, the I might very well be the, the more correct well, grammatically. I'll tell you, but the the me works for me. I tell you why I think it's not. Now I think we're both wrong. I've committed an etiquette faux pas by saying me and Adrian Logan instead of Adrian yep. Logan me. But my understanding about this huggy from when I was a uh, student cadet journal all those years ago. And working it media. Ago, working media. Hmm. The simple rule of thumb here is if you take out the second person, the self-explainer stays the same. So yeah. I spoke with Jeff Mingay. Adrian and I spoke with Jeff Mingay. Jeff Mingay spoke to me. So Jeff, Jeff Mingay spoke to Adrian and me, not me and Adrian. And, Adrian, and in that context, Adrian and I is actually incorrect. That would be like saying, good of you to join I here in the studio, and me will explain it shortly. Well, credit to Mark Hayes, because that's what he came he up with as well. He backed me up, yeah. yeah. So, um, I'm glad you've been giving this plenty of thought. I, 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 have, only, I have only one question at the end of that is, Who are there any listeners left? <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> it was important that I that I get my, make myself known on that topic, Huggy, because it's actually quite intriguing. I have a disgraceful lack of knowledge about the English language for someone who makes their living using it, so <laughs> I don't pretend to know much. Anyway, Huggy, life in the bubble. Is it as joyless as it would you'd expect it to be? Uh, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't a lot of fun. Um, I was very happy to get home last night. Um, it was particularly frustrating for me because of the the actual the venue of the the tournament um, is the part of the world where I'm actually from. I was born about ten miles from the golf course. I was I grew up about fifteen minutes from the golf course. 
my mother lives a bit, still lives 15 minutes away and my son's about 10 minutes away and I couldn't see or go and see them or do anything really uh, other than drive back and forward between the golf course and this incredibly inconvenient hotel in the right in the middle of Edinburgh, in the middle of all the traffic and the roadworks and all the nonsense. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's difficult to complain too much about, you know, little things like that when you're in the middle of a global pandemic and people are losing their lives. But um, as an experience, it's not one I'd want to repeat uh, too often or anytime soon, put it that way. What are the mechanics of it, Huggy? We spoke briefly before you went, they'd sent you a home test kit, but what are the mechanics of actually getting into and then being in the bubble over the course of the four days? Yeah, well, I went down um, <clears throat> last Tuesday. I drove from home straight to the golf course. Uh, you're The first thing you do is that you're tested. You get the test where they stick the thing up your nose. Uh, not nearly as bad as advertised, by the way. Um, it wasn't too painful or, or uncomfortable. Uh, once you've done that, um, you go straight back to the, or I did, I chose to go straight back to my car. I had to taken some sandwiches and some refreshments with me and a newspaper to do the crossword. Uh, and I was there for about three hours until the test result came through and I was negative. So I could then enter the bubble officially. So I could then go into the media center and go and um, wander around, basically. Um, after that, I couldn't go in the range, which was annoying. Um, there's a lot of things I couldn't you couldn't do. Um, you had to stay away from people as much as possible, obviously, the distancing thing. Uh, the one good thing was, or the best thing, was that you could walk on the golf course to your heart's content. You could go and walk up the middle of the fairway with the players, you know, obviously a wee bit away from them. But uh, I walked a few holes on the last day uh, with Tommy Fleetwood and was right there. You could go, you, know, you could get close much closer than you normally can without being too close, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I uh, enjoyed that aspect of it, but uh, it was it was difficult to do the job that we are that I was there to do. And it certainly um, the lack of freedom uh, is not something that I enjoyed. And I don't I can see why players have you know rebelled slightly at that or haven't enjoyed it. They like said Jonathan Smith. I talked to him. I've done a piece for the my American employers on the bubble and mental health aspects of it. And uh, he, he was quite funny actually, because he was the one who famously walked off at Valderrama uh, in the middle of what was his seventh tournament in a row. Um, it's not something that he's going to repeat. Um, he was, but that wasn't really a mental health issue. It was more of a mental exhaustion issue. Um, and I think the players on the, the, what came out of my chats with the players who play both on the European tour and in the PGA tour, is that there's quite a difference between the bubble in the European tour and the bubble in the PGA tour. Things are a lot stricter mm. in Europe. Um, they get away with quite a lot in the PGA tour by the sound of things. Uh, they can go out to restaurants, they can go to shops and buy food. You couldn't do any of that um, last week. Once you're back at the hotel, for me anyway, I would go back to the hotel in the evening, I'd order room service, I'd have some to eat, and then I'd go to bed. I mean, that was basically my day. There was, um, There was no, you know chance that you could do anything different um the caddies seemed to be able to it was funny because there, there was a kind of balcony area at the front of the hotel which was uh, just at the top of leith walk in edinburgh for people who know edinburgh and the, the caddies were kind of outside they could they, you, you could go out just outside the door and but there was a fence and they actually had security guards there to stop people going any further 
So once you were in, you were in. That was it. There was no getting out again. So, again, I mean, it, it sounds all kind of petty and, you know, to moan and groan too much about that. But um, I can see why after two or three weeks of it that you would have had enough. And I think um, I actually talked to Lucas Herbert as well, your compatriot who had you know, famously had some mental health issues last year, I think, when he kind of opted out for a few weeks. And he's been very careful about his schedule. And I think that that's generally the case, that guys are wary of not playing too many weeks in a row. And I've having done one week and, and found it, you know, tiresome um, is probably the best word. Um, I can see why they would do that. It's not 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 far off unbearable by the sound of it for multiple. Well, times. no, I mean that's no. an exaggeration, but it's 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 <clears throat> no fun. There is no fun to be had. So, is it sustainable? You're talking about the entertainment industry for those in the bubble, as you say, and the players who are on multiple week schedules. They're having about the same amount of fun. It would seem. What happens ultimately to the game? Then, I mean, I suppose it's a television product. In the end, it yeah. maybe it, maybe well, it doesn't matter, Huggy. I don't know. Well, for the players, in, in the short term at least, um, you know, they're, they're kind of putting up with it because it's, it's viewed almost universally as this is, this is way better than lockdown when, you, mm. you know, they were struggling even to go and hit balls. It's nothing like the, the previous normal to, you know, prior to lockdown, but this is way better than lockdown and that's still kind of fixed in their memory how bad that was. Mm. So this is better. They're still playing for you know, decent amount of money, nothing like the money that they normally play for. But you're right. I mean, long term, you have to think that, you know, this is this probably isn't sustainable. So the sooner they get a vaccine, the better for the European tour. Because I think um, we've talked about this before. I mean, financially, mm. it's got to be a big issue for them. I mean, the, the play, apart from the Scottish Open last week and the BMW PGA this week, which are both $7 million because of the Rolex uh, sponsorship. Um, the other tournaments, uh, I mean, they're playing for hardly any money in, uh, relative to what was what was um, normal before. So you're right. Longer term, there's there's questions to be asked and answered. Mm. I, I was um, first of all all th- through that description of uh, the bubble. I couldn't get the image of my head, uh, image out of my head of uh, Huggy scowling at the person who's going to stick the thing up his nose. <laughs> which, which, by the way, I think is at least as bad as advertised on me. I've had it twice, and it's turned as though I do have a fairly sizable nose. So perhaps that makes that worse. Yeah, um, no, it was. It was fine. I mean, I I was expecting the worst, and I'd seen you know video of Ian Poulter having it done. It didn't look, and he didn't enjoy it, but it it wasn't bad at all i mean it was 2 or 3 seconds and done you know so um i can't really complain about that well i hope you made it as uncomfortable as possible for the person <laughs> doing it to you no no she was, i said she was a lovely lady she, okay. you know we had a wee chat and off i went back to the car and you know i got the the text or the email about three hours later, it wasn't. It wasn't, wasn't too bad. I even had a wee nap. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> so everything was kind of situation normal then, because you'd have been napping in the media centre exactly. otherwise. Quite possible. Just sitting upright. Um, and uh, yeah, it was surprising how quickly they dropped the Irish Open. I thought from the Rolex series, that was. Um, you wonder what. Well, the they were actually lucky to get the Irish Open played at all because mm. it was due to be played in the Republic of Ireland, uh, but there and almost you know whatever government regulations are in place there at the moment, they, they, they couldn't have a sporting event in the Republic. So that was why it was shifted quite late on into Northern Ireland, which is, as I'm sure you know, is part of the United Kingdom. Mm. So the, the rules are different. That was the only reason 
that they got the thing played at all. So um, they were lucky, as I say, they were lucky to have a tournament, never mind a Rolex Series event. You've obviously come into the bubble situation quite late, Huggy, and I imagine they've ironed out most of the bugs and it would all be fairly seamless and sort of smooth. But did you get any sense of perhaps the machinations behind the scenes with all of that other stuff going on, the things that Logue's hinting at there, discussions with sponsors and the corporate element, because not not having crowds is one thing, uh, and that has an impact, but of course you can't entertain your corporate partners, which is why they put up the mm. big bucks, uh, essentially. So did you get any sense of maybe what's going on behind the scenes? Are they still frantically working on schedules and more events? Well, clearly. Uh, I mean, you just have to look at the, the, the prize funds. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I can't remember the details of it, but I think the, the, the two tournaments last week and this week – $14 million, that is more than the the previous eight combined. Combined, yeah. And the one this week, one of those two tournaments is more money than the next four events after Wentworth this week. So clearly, that you know, there's a lot, there, there must, I know there's a lot of talking going on, but the, the fact that the European Tour are always late in announcing their schedule for the following year, and goodness knows where they are with that right now. Um, I don't know where the Middle East swing is in terms of that's usually January, early February. There's been no announcement, you know, they've gone very quiet on that front, which doesn't, you know, suggest that there's anything concrete to tell us, because if there was some good news, we, we'd well, be hearing about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it, you know, as I say, that I keep going back to the fact that, the, you know, the European Tour are on the edge financially. I, I can't believe they're not. Um, and the Premier Golf League thing kind of bubbles away in the background. Yeah, we talked about um, that last time, it, didn't we? That might be something that uh, could happen in the future. Perfect scenario for them to prey on the tour, no, really, absolutely. isn't it? Though, of course, ironically, they're looking to the PGA Tour for most of their <laughs> most of the players that they'd like to sign for the, yep. the project that they've got in mind, which brings us neatly to Tommy Fleetwood. And we'll talk about the actual tournament shortly, Huggy, because it was nice to have someone mm. who was actually there. But uh, Tommy Fleetwood was kind of the standout player, I guess, in the field this week. Well, uh, Robert, uh, Robert Rock, I thought, was. Well, obviously, Rock's lit, always lit, a standout, but in terms of world rankings, <laughs> et cetera, and in, in terms of profile, <laughs> Fleetwood is an internationally... Um, internationally known sort of player the double edge well the, the the double whammy for the european tour is of course because of all those reasons we've just discussed most of the big name european tour players have just scarpered for the pga tour where there's been no change in the purses not so yeah. much change in the schedule uh and life in the bubble is much more sort of appealing so not only have they got the problems that they've got with an international schedule dealing with multiple countries and trying to organize a bubble and they've done an amazing job to this point the european tour but it might ultimately be in a losing cause simply because the main product the players have an alternative that's much more appealing it'd be an awful position to be in to be keith pelly at the moment don't you reckon Huggy? well yeah i mean if i'm keith pelly i'm i'd be appealing to them all you know to their better natures to come back and play as often as possible. And, and Lee Westwood, to his credit, I mean, Lee Westwood is, uh, you know, legend might be too strong a word on the European tour, but uh, he's been a terrific player for a long time and he's, and he's stuck around. I mean, mm -hmm. he's played in, you know, five or six events, I think, since the lockdown came, since they came back from lockdown. Um, there's a few of them playing this week at Wentworth. There was two or three more. There was a better field at the Scottish Open and it's been the norm, but that you can put that down to the money. Mm -hmm. I mean, Poulter and McDowell and a few others were there last week. Justin Rose is playing this week, but there's no sign of Rory, no sign of John Ram, no sign of Sergio, no sign of Paul Casey, no sign of Luke Donald. You know, there's a few that you would think, mm, 
make a bit of an effort, lads. This is uh, this is where you started to play, you know. Um, but you know, <laughs> the cynical part of me thinks, well, they're not going to bother, <laughs> you know. But they really should. I mean, there's a moral obligation there, surely, for some of these guys to to get together and, and take turns. They don't have to come back at once. That that kind of defeats the object. But um, if they were all to say, right, you go there, I'll go there, and and make a, you know, at least be make somewhat an event of each each tournament. Uh, that would be the right thing to do, but uh, I'm, as I say, I'm not holding my breath. How many players from the Scottish Open in round three might have been thinking <laughs> if this was the PGA, the PGA Tour, Tour. <laughs> they'd have taken us off the course during <laughs> the uh, enormous yeah, amount of rain? That was yeah, what a bunch of wussies. Yeah, it wasn't that bad. I mean, I've, I've seen that's what I like thought. That. It seemed fine, but but just to see professional golfers have to <laughs> tolerate it after you know the US PGA Tour just would have been taken straight off. You know, the, well, the the course would have been unplayable with that amount of rain uh, in America. They would have it would have flooded far you know quicker than the sand based course that they were playing in Scotland. But uh, to be perfectly honest with you, though, I mean uh, it's always a bit of a joke um, when the weather goes like that in Scotland. That I mean, nobody from Scotland goes out and plays in that. Of course we not. just sit in the clubhouse yeah. and watch all the Americans play. It. I mean, it's madness. Yeah, it you know, is. we don't play in that nonsense. No. Why, why would you? <laughs> Don't tell the secrets. Having said that, for an entertainment product, I think Logue is absolutely right. I think every golfer deep down, there's a bit of the NASCAR thing about it where people watch for the scratches. <laughs> you love to see the pros have mm. to play. All your millions can't save you from what's out there at the moment. From wet shoes. That's right. Get yeah, out. Blow dry your shoes tonight. And play. There was some big scores on the Saturday. They don't. They actually don't play that often in that kind of weather, the professionals, do they? They tend to follow the sun. And so it does find out some yeah. things about the players. What did you yeah. observe well, around the place? Well, I, I thought Lucas Herbert, was that he was the most um, extreme version of what went on. He was, I think he was 66, 65, 79, 65 to finish T4. You know, um, a bit more maturity from him on the Saturday afternoon, knocked three or four shots off and he would have been right there. But but the highlight, of course, was was Fleetwood's round. Um, He wasn't the low score of the day because the conditions in the morning were um, not quite as intolerable as they were later on when he was playing. But 69 in those conditions, was a, a magnificent effort. And, I mean, his ball striking w- was fantastic. And and he came out with what I firmly believe will, will be the quote of the year uh, during that round. On the 14th tee, a short hole, he came in afterwards and explained it. He said, the caddy gave him the yardage. And he then said, well, I could almost have hit any club in the bag. All I had to do was create something. And it wasn't that great. Isn't that such a great mm-hmm. contrast yeah. with this golf by numbers that we watch the rest of them playing week every every week? And I'm tired of the scientific approach to golf. It's not supposed to be a science. I've said it many times. It's an art. Mm-hmm. And it, on Saturday afternoon, in those vile conditions, it went back to being an art, even at Tommy Fleetwood's level. And he he embraced that and shot a fantastic score. I mean, it, it was an education to watch some of the shots he hit. It was fantastic stuff. Mm. Rain like that's a big leveller, isn't it? You see it in Formula One as well, where the the top teams for all of their technology and everything can't, um, well, you know, they, they're at danger of losing races when the rain comes down and you get... So it's a different skill set that's sort of... Uh, that's right. It's a great leveller. Sort of required because you can get by in professional golf. This is part of the problem of the way the game's gone the last sort of 30 years, isn't it? You can get by with perfecting 
a six iron that goes 194 yards mm. on track man. You can make a lot of money yeah. doing that mm. around the world and you don't need to worry that the two times a year you encounter conditions like Saturday at the Scottish Open, you shoot 79 and so be it. Uh, the next day you come out and shoot 65, not to not to single out Lucas, but he's probably yeah. not a poster child, but he's a fine example of sort of the modern thinking about the game uh, in that yeah. way. And he's a fantastic exponent yeah. of it. Yeah. I was going to say, after the round, Tommy Fleetwood came out with what will be the second greatest <laughs> quote of the year when he said that, you know, he says, my biggest ambition in golf is to win the Open and one day I might have to win it in conditions like yeah, that. Absolutely. Yeah, so absolutely. Lucas, if Lucas has got um, half a brain, and I think he does, mm. he could be. He should have been listening and watching what Tommy Fleetwood did that day and learning from it. Yeah, it, it's the final point one of a percent for a player like Lucas, isn't it? He's clearly shown himself to be uh, mm. a much better player than I thought initially. Uh, he's got a lot more game than I thought initially, uh, but he's that last couple of percent. He could really be. Uh, Top ten, top mm. fifteen in the world. He's got all the tools to do that. He's got all of that mo- those modern tools. If you learn, as you say, if he learns a bit from Fleetwood and Fleetwood's attitude Saturday and the way he went about it, because there's no reason he can't learn to play punch. It's always been the criticism no. of Jason Day, isn't it? He hits everything at 110, yeah. percent which is great most of the time. But every now and then you're going to get found out, and you know you're going to shoot 70, 78 instead of sixty-eight. Uh, so who else did anybody? Yeah, else? We were, they were kind of comparing that weather to. What had happened at Muirfield in 2002, but uh, the difference was that the Muirfield thing was a storm that came and went. It, was, it lasted maybe two and a half hours. When Tiger Woods famously shot 81, I think yeah. Monty shot 84, yeah. and everybody goes, "Wow, that you know it was terrible to cost Tiger the Grand Slam and this and that." But what everybody forgets is that the guy who won the, the, the Open the following day, Ernie Els, it was about two or three groups away from Tiger. Yep. That on the Saturday afternoon, it wasn't as if he got the benefit of the draw. He was out there playing in it as well, yeah. and he managed. I think he got round in seventy-two, but Tiger took eighty-one. I'm sure Tiger sat back and thought to himself, "I can learn from that." Oh. You know, he he's he wouldn't have missed the the, um, the obvious part of it that Ernie handled it a lot better than he did. So I, I bet you Tiger was better the next time he played and stuff like that. Oh no question. Now who was the player that year, Huggy? You remember this? Who went from like tied fifty or something after they'd finished their morning round into the top ten by the t- without without moving from their hotel room? That storm came through and just blew half the field off the leaderboard. Uh, as you write this, I can't. Was it Justin? Wasn't it Justin? Mm-hmm. It wasn't Justin Leonard? Might have been Justin Rose. I can't remember. Anyway, yeah, so, that, so that, somebody jumped, right. yeah, thirty-five spots on the leaderboard while sitting in their hotel room, which is a joyous way to play golf if you're a professional, I'm sure. What about the golf itself, Huggy? Because, like most people, we know who Tommy Fleetwood is because he's been an achiever in the game. You would have had your house on him to win a playoff against Aaron Rye, who I know is a European mm. Tour winner. This was his second Tour title, but we don't know that much about him. What happened there? What was the uh, what was the actual golf element? Also, we, we just keep leaving Robert Rock out of this, uh, which is very concerning we'll to come, me. I, I want to we'll talk come about Robert. To Rock. Robert, he gets his own segment. Uh, tell us about the actual finish there and, and the playoff huggy. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, the, you know, the, but once they tie and once they get into a playoff, I mean, the fact that Aaron Rye won the playoff is it's not that big a shock. I mean, it's it always makes me laugh when I, when we have the you know the occasional match play event at pro level and a, somebody X beating Y is defined as a, as a shock. Mm-hmm. There, there are no shocks at that level of golf over 18 holes. I mean, anybody can beat anybody. Mm-hmm. And, and that's certainly the case in a, in a one-hole playoff, you know, the sudden-death playoff. It, it wasn't that big a, a shock. What it was a shock that, that was that Tommy Fleetwood took five from middle of the fairway. That, that was surprising. 
but not that he lost. I mean, Aaron Rice, uh, and he was second in Ireland the week before, so it's not as if he's you know exactly off form at the moment. But uh, and he's a beautiful golfer. I actually spoke to um, Michael Campbell. I interviewed Michael Campbell for uh, the ne- I think the next issue of Golf Australia magazine er- early in the week. And one of the things I asked Michael was, um, who has impressed you in your few events that you've played on the European Tour this summer? And he identified Aaron Rye. Mm, this go. is on the Tuesday or Wednesday before the tournament, so there was no inkling of what was to come. And, and he singled him out as a player who could hit the ball both ways, high, low, had all the shots, and had really impressed Michael, Which you know, that all, the, all of which is a very difficult thing to do with the, the modern equipment. But... Uh, you know, Michael Campbell obviously knows a player when he sees one. Yeah, clearly. And, of course, none of that. I mean, that, that all suggests flair, and everything about Aaron Rye that you see publicly doesn't suggest mm. flair at all, does it? <laughs> he doesn't strike you as a bloke who's got all the shots and plays them. No, he's, he's not a great interview. Um, I have to say he was a bit dull. Um, I think when he was asked, you know, how are you going to celebrate this great victory, this, you know, in the 940,000 euro that I think he'd just won, and he said something along the lines of, "Well, I, I think I'll just go back and have a, have some sleep and a bit of rest," Woo. <laughs> which was not what the tabloid boys were looking for. No, tell you. no, not what Mel Reid will be doing. The, the one interesting <laughs> thing he did come up with was that he, he had actually won a tournament in Scotland before uh, on the Euro Pro Tour, which is like the third division mm-hmm. in Europe back in 2015, something like that. And back then, he, he whatever tournament he'd won i can't remember the name of it but he won ten thousand pounds first prize but he also won a golf trolley and a range finder which is a great contrast from the nine hundred and forty thousand euro that he picked up yesterday and he still uses that range finder range finder to this day it's a fairy tale story really isn't it huggy yeah. uh yeah. fantastic stuff logue robert rock uh, well, I, I enjoy watching oh, Robert doesn't? Rock. He's yeah, a good-looking son of a gun. He's got a great, uh, great head of hair, but he's he's just got a lovely golf swing. He and I, they made the uh, they made the observation many times in the commentary over the weekend about it, it looks like a player from the seventies or eighties. And but it, it's a fair enough observation. He really does look like a player from the seventies or eighties. He's got that lovely swing. It's all square to square, and um, it's I enjoy watching him on TV. And I wonder why. He's not up near the top of the leaderboard more often. Indeed, Huggy. He's an intriguing conundrum, isn't he, Robert Rock? Because he mm. should be at the yeah, top I, of the leaderboard every time he tees up. Yeah, I like Robert a lot. He's a, he's a good guy. I, I talk to him quite often. And you're right. I mean, he, the, there is nothing moving in that swing that doesn't need to move. It's a beautiful thing to watch. And he does have great hair. Not that I have <laughs> hair, but, no doubt. Yeah. I was interested, intrigued to see yes. what he was going to do on uh, the third round when all that rain was coming down. He came out with a like a, a cap and made it look a lot better than Bryson DeChambeau, <laughs> like a Hogan cap. Yeah. yeah made that work pretty right. well. But, uh, yeah. He's, intriguingly, he's, uh, he, I mean, he coaches some of the other players now. Mm-hmm. He's been doing that for a while. But he's, he's now in, gotten a, in, he's in a relationship with Thomas Bjorn where Robert teaches Thomas the full swing and Thomas teaches oh. Robert the short game. Mm. So they're, they're, I'm Ten not sure any money is changing hands. They're probably trading one off against the other, but that's that's where they are at they're, the moment. They're golf pros, Huggy. No money is changing hands, trust me. <laughs> that's not yeah, their stock in trade. Here's a bit of trivia for you. About, I'm going to say six or seven years ago, I did a feature on Lucas Herbert when he was still an amateur. Not, oh, he might have just mm-hmm. turned pro, actually, not long after he had that terrific finish at the Australian Masters and then drove overnight mm-hmm. to Sydney and qualified for the Open. 
Yeah. And one I of the remember th- that. Yeah. Uh, one of the things well, I did my research. My research is always extensive. I went to the Golf Australia website because he was one of their high performance players, and they have to nominate some. They give him five questions to answer, and one of them was, you know, so I knew his you? favorite movie. Well, I knew his favorite player. Okay. Robert what was Rock. Robert Rock? Yeah. Yeah. And I asked him why, yeah. and he like said, best mate or "He said, oh, it's a bit of a joke, really. I just like the fact he doesn't wear a hat." Oh, was it? Oh. <laughs> that was kind of that was kind of it. So there you go. And there with the two of them up the top of the leaderboard, got to meet his hero. Always great to have Huggy along for a chat, and I hope that you're enjoying some of his insights from on the ground there in Scotland. Now, while you're contemplating some of Huggy's observations, do yourself and us a favour by surfing over to thegolfsociety.com.au and checking out some of the very best in apparel and accessories at the very best prices. The new season Jay Lindeberg range has just arrived, and as a Talking Golf listener, you'll get a $25 store credit on your first purchase simply by logging into the page thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash Talk and golf. The talk and golf's the important bit there. It's only got the one G. Look, to make sure there's no mistakes, use the link that's in the show notes below. You can't see it, but I'm pointing down. Down below, you'll find the show notes. Look your best, even if you don't play your best, with thegolfsociety.com.au. Now, back to John Huggan. Well, another, another good swinger, Mark Warren, was good to see him on the, the leaderboard. Mm, yeah. Your countryman, yeah. Huggy. What's the go with Scottish golf, Huggy? Um... Why don't we see? Uh, well, we've got a few. We've got a few bubbling under at the moment. McIntyre mm-hmm. um, being the Bob McIntyre being the most notable one, uh, but Grant Forrest and uh, you know Matt Warren is he's not that old. I think he's in mid thirties now, maybe closer to forty. But uh, but you're right about he's got a beautiful swing. Um, and there's Callum Hill, Liam Johnston. There's a, as I say, there's a few that have got the. They look to me like they're going to be good, solid European tour players without being superstars. McIntyre might be the one that's yeah. got a slightly better career than that ahead of him. Superstar might be a, a stretch, but um, you know he's he's got a little bit about him. You know, as they say, he's uh, he's gallus is a good Scottish word. It's a kind of it means that you're cocky without being big headed, uh-huh. and that's what that kind of. That's what Bob McIntyre's like. Who was the tour pro he gave it to? It's full of piss USA. and vinegar. Yeah, who was the tour pro he gave it to? Um, was it oh, Kepler, Kyle was Stanley? Oh, Kyle Stanley. Stanley. Right. That's exactly yeah. right. Was uh, yeah. didn't didn't take We're it back with That's right. I I became an instant. I'd like Robert McIntyre then, but I became an instant ma- rusted on McIntyre fan when he had the Kahuna's to stand up yeah. and say that publicly. Uh, at uh, I think it was US Open, wasn't it? US Open, US Open, US PGA. Yeah, yeah. It was the Open at Fort Rush. Yeah, well done. Now, Logue. The golf course, the Renaissance Club, or the Renaissance Club, if we're going with the Aaron Rye thing, you you had some you had some observations. Uh, well, yeah. I, well, first of all, it's getting off on the wrong foot with that name, like the Renaissance Club. It's a bit of a wank. Oh, golf club names. There's an episode in that. They're, they're, they're terrible generally. Too many oaks, hills, trees. Yeah, just an animal stuff. named yeah, after animals stuff. and bears and stuff. Um, <laughs> so it's getting off to a bad start. Right away, calling itself the Renaissance Club. Have you done the logo? Have you had a look at the logo? Especially, I actually haven't. No, mm, okay. Interesting. Have yeah, have a look at that. <laughs> um, but especially in that area of the world as well, what a pretentious <laughs> thing to name your golf club. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm interested to hear. It's very hard to judge these things on from TV. It doesn't stop me from judging it. <laughs> stop you but, from doing it, of course. <laughs> but um, it looks to me like it, you know it's Tom Doak design and it's a links on a rare piece of ground like it's very rare for a, a piece of ground especially that part of the world to be can be given over for to golf, a yeah. golf course these days and so it's a very intriguing thing and 
it, if anything, I guess it needs time. Any any new golf course, I think, needs time to see in the long, you know, in the long term, what's its place going to be in in world golf and in history. But uh, this is a course that is very exclusive, and so it it won't it'll be denied that opportunity of a lot of people playing it. And I think that's an important part of um, a course becoming uh, of in interest Scotland, to in Scotland, especially. Well, that's right. It stands out for that reason. But you know, you've got you've got holes at North Berwick, which are somewhat um, like there's some there's spectacular holes at North Berwick, but there's also some you know just normal golf holes. There, there was nothing extraordinary bland. about them. Yeah, you were going to say bland. Well, there's a great mix of bland yeah. and spectacular at North Berwick. Like We've talked about that before. It's, yeah, the sort of it's punctuated by these spectacular features. But there's a there's places at North Berwick where you stand, like say the tenth tee or something like that, where you're making the turn, and I think it might even be the highest part of the course, and you're looking out over the field, and you can see the town, and you're about to head back there. And anybody who's been there, the tenth isn't a especially great hole. It's probably the least interesting of the par threes at North Berwick. But you um you're standing there, and it's an incredibly special place. And anybody who stood there would know, like that. It's a it's an amazing feeling. And the, the key is a lot of people get to stand there. Mm-hmm. And I, d- I just don't see any part of that the course at the Renaissance ever even coming close to because not getting that status of, yeah, of we'll you know having that same feeling. Even though it occupies some amazing land and it has some amazing views, it'll never be special to anyone. And uh, But it'll be interesting to see over time if it does. It, you know, also, it's, it looks soft. It didn't help that there was all that rain on, on uh, the day three, but- I suspect it's always pretty soft, and that's how the members like it. Um, Possibly. Does it fit in with Scottish golf, Huggy? Or is it sort of uh, the antithesis of everything that Scottish golf that Well, yeah. Is? I mean, certainly the, the exclusivity part is uh, Adrian's dead right on that. It's, uh, it's I've never played the course. Um, I've walked around it a few times, and one of my closest friends actually caddies there. Um, but they... On, for the Scottish Open last week, I mean, they came they came up with this incredibly contrived order of whole order. I mean, or, or routing as they call it in America. Um, yeah, the, some of the walks between greens and tees was about two hundred and fifty yards. At some, at some of them, it was crazy what they were what they came up with. Obviously, for television, and I agree with you. Some of the holes down by the by the water are kind of like those um, silly calendar holes that you used to see. Um, you know, they're the spectacular scenery, but the the holes themselves are are not great. Uh, I suspect Visit Scotland, who were involved in the the sponsorship of the Scottish Open, had more had something to do with that. They they get those holes on the television as much as possible because uh, there is a spectacular. Um, there's some great aerial shots. I thought. I mean, I'm I'm kind of biased when it comes to East Lothian because that's where I'm from, but uh, it did look beautiful. Except on the Saturday, uh, it didn't look so good then. But uh, should visit Scotland, weren't loving that. But the, but I, I agree with pretty much everything that Adrian said there. I mean, it's uh, it's it's exclusive. It's not for the. It's not exactly um, for the people, if you like. And uh, that's really what Scottish golf should be about: is the original egalitarian spirit of the games, uh, not exactly typified by the renaissance club the best of scottish golf certainly is that isn't it It sort of begs the question Huggy. we seem to have a period in the last decade where i assume it's the scottish golf union or similarly named organization was going to some of the great links courses 
that aren't necessarily associated with professional golf. They played at Gullen a couple of times, uh, and some. Mm. we saw them up at Aberdeen playing some real Lynx gems and really showing the world what golf can achieve. It was a fantastic period. Why have we gone back to this notion of an exclusive golf club? I mean, it, it seems to be all the wrong messages to send about golf in Scotland and golf generally. Yeah, well, you know, you're right, but it's all about money, isn't it? I mean, it's, they they go where the money is. It's a it's a professional tour. I mean, it's always been the case, certainly in in the UK, that the um, the top amateurs play far better courses than the the pros do. I mean, my goodness, if you look at the the schedule on any tour, I mean, the pros play some absolute rubbish over the course of twelve months. But the the top amateur events, and I'm sure it's pretty much the same in Australia that the has the Australian amateur ever played on a really bad golf course? Are you trying to get yeah. us in trouble? <laughs> Do you want us to say yeah. something that's going to have us excluded from future well, Australian? Well, I, I don't know. I bet Australia. it doesn't happen very often. I don't, actually, I don't think so. One of the, no, now that no, I think it's so. generally on, it's uh, generally on one of the on better courses. Some of the better courses, yeah, yeah. Sort of around the place. What about the importance of that, Huggy? We talk about this a lot. We talk about the distance. and We talk about essentially the role of professional golf in golf more broadly. And professional golf thinks it's the most important thing. In fact, it doesn't even really consider itself golf in a lot of ways. I suspect it's just a business. Golf happens to be the product. There's dangers, isn't there? I mean, we know that as a whole generation of Australians grew up watching Greg Norman play tournament golf in Australia, for the most part, on our best golf courses. And that combination is what makes the game so appealing. What are we doing to the future of golf if we simply pursue single-mindedly where the money is to play professional golf? Well, it gets back to, you know, in so many ways that the professional tours, they don't seem to employ much long-term thinking for me. I mean, the, you know, the distance thing is the classic example of that where I keep asking myself where where they're going to play in 10 years time and, and what kind of product they're going to be putting out on television and that, if it keeps going the way it's going, that every single player on the tour is going to be playing exactly the same way. There's going to be very little variety, uh, even less than there is now. So, and that cannot be good long term for either the game or the product that they're trying to sell to the pub- to the public. I mean, you know, I'm going to get fed up watching it pretty soon, and I'm sure a lot of other people will too. And you know, I, I, I just keep coming back to the fact that. Why, why don't they think like that? And why don't they do something about it now before it's too late? Mm. Uh, I, I, tell us. Well, I'm why? guessing we're not the, the audience. Is, is the only conclusion I can reach. That there's, there's a core audience out there that want to see golf played on a manufactured uh, strip of land that has, you know, if they could paint like markers every 10 yards like they do in NFL, like, I'm sure they would. Like it's it's going to come. Actually, why would you give them that idea? You know <laughs> that's now going to happen, don't you? I've, it's on you, I've mentioned that before, but <laughs> I, I think that's that's exactly where professional golf is going. Is that they want this very orderly manufactured field that looks like a video game, and uh, there's no stopping it. No, there's an audience for it. That's I, I agree that there's an intriguing. You know, maybe they are actually onto the long term future of the business of golf, which will be the home participants will be playing on a screen. And only the professionals will be playing on an outdoor area. That's right. Might, uh, might be the thing. Did Did you get blocked by Brandel Chambly this morning over this very discussion, Huggy? I haven't seen it, I, but I've, I I'm, did. I, I just spotted it about you know maybe an hour and a half ago, and I, I, I tweeted about it. He's, it's not the first time he's blocked me, and uh, I've actually sent a message to Eamon Lynch, who's uh, writes for Golf Week, and he's 
Brando's big pal, asking if there's a record of people who've been who's been blocked most often by Brandel and, and and am I in contention so is he trolling he keeps, is that what he's doing do you think he keeps he, well he keeps portraying all his nonsense that he comes out with as fact and you know he, he can, as I keep telling him you can do anything with numbers you can statistics you know it's the old lies damned lies and statistics thing I mean you can do you can prove anything that you want to prove with those numbers but they're not facts in, in, in the strictest sense of the word. I would, I would argue. Mm. My, my favourite uh, quote about stats is that they're, they're like a lamppost. They can be used to illuminate or hold up a drunk. <laughs> Which, whichever, whichever yeah. you prefer, whichever use you prefer. So, just to, for those who might have missed it, Brandall posted a sort of a GIF video yesterday of one of the long drives. Kyle, somebody, I think his name is, who's got a. Uh, a Bryson DeChambeau action on steroids, an outrageous move, and hits the ball. Miles, he just said that this is the future of professional golf. Is he gaslighting, Hogue? Is that the term that the kids use? Is that what Brandle's doing? Is he just trolling because he flip-flops around? And it, it feels like, much of the time, what he's trying to do is attract attention, and it works. Yeah. A huggy bit, took the bait, and got himself blocked. Is that what he's doing? <laughs> it reminds me of a, a saying I heard recently. With with all this delicious food around, Huggy, why would you take the bait? <laughs> <laughs> well, basically because I've got a, I've got a pseudonym on on Twitter that I use for the to if I'm interested to go and you know have a read of the the tweets that I'm blocked from reading as myself. So <laughs> you can't really be blocked on Twitter. You can no. endlessly create new new identities if you really Very want Very advanced, Huggy. I'd never thought of doing that. You've now tipped me. There you go. I'm going to do that. You use the good, good I, I've got, I've got a pretty distinguished list of people. I mean, Annika Sonstam blocked me. Monty really? blocked nice. me. Brando Chambry blocked me. Sure, there's others, you know. So. There's no great scale. I mean, if Tommy Fleetwood blocks you, I'll be impressed. Bad that would be well, I'd, I'd be worried about that, yeah. Yeah, so, indeed. I like Tom. Yeah. So back to Brandon. What do you reckon he's doing? Like, is that what it is? Is it about his profile? Because he's now he's gone from golfer. He was a professional golfer. He's now a TV personality, and a bit like Piers Morgan in the UK, Sam Newman down here in Australia. There is a need to oh, keep himself in the like, spotlight. Is there not? It's a harsh comparison. Um, yeah. Look, he, that, I think that's his job is to create controversy, um, and so it, it's the only thing that can explain his behaviour because his uh, his he believes in one thing one day and complete opposite the the next day and uh, I think he just genuinely puts things out there uh, reputation be damned he puts things out there to create controversy and, and create conversation and I'm sure yeah, Golf Channel loves it the problem is of course Huggy, he's not an unintelligent chap is he he's a very bright bloke oh, he God, is no. we've had him on yeah. the podcast. I actually I got for a long time I got on really well with him I mean we were on the same you know wavelength if you like as Adrian just said though and then he, he just switched Completely, he started talking nonsense, and uh, that's where he kind of lost me. Mm. I know. I think he he had that relationship with Justin Ray when Justin Ray was working for Golf Channel, where I think he would collude a lot with Justin to get a stat to support some argument that he wanted to make, and he then put that out there. And I think he's got a new stats guy now. And it, but it took him a while to get back up to speed after Justin Ray left no, Golf Channel. Just, he is the Rain Man, Justin <laughs> That's Ray. Right. There's nothing he doesn't know. But mm. there's this interesting dynamic there where you can you can kind of see the it's deliberate. Like there's cogs turning to there's there's no off the cuff comments from Brandle. It's all uh, planned out and scheduled, and he's got his facts all lined up before he goes out with with some ridiculous thing. Yeah. 
he's got the counter arguments all lined well, you know, up and everything. You've got to do. You've got to get him on. You should get him on. We and have. talk to him about all these things. We, we had a bit of a set ah. to back in the I Seek Golf podcast days before it morphed into the Good Good Golf oh, podcast. Right, okay. I, uh, he'd written something and I wrote a column basically saying it was a bunch of old nonsense. But he was irritatingly he, polite, wasn't he? He, he, he was bit, super nice. Yeah, he bit. We yeah. got him on the show and he was sort of yeah very <laughs> nice and managed to he, he outplayed us. He played us off a break. We couldn't make a dent. Um, we really need somebody serious like it's, you, Huggy, to. It's extremely well researched, and he, uh, he's got condescension down to a fine art. He really does. Interestingly, though, and I find this really interesting. If Brandle really believed what he said, he would engage with the likes of Clayton, and he never does. Mm. Clayton, in particular, no. he seems to avoid. You know, Clayton will often respond to a tweet that he sent out, and he never responds directly. You know, I think he knows innately that that would be a really interesting discussion that he might mm. not come out of on top. He might, but he might not because Clates is the ultimate. Oh, I don't ultimate. think he would. I don't think so, but we are Clates devotees, so we can't pretend like we're not biased there. <laughs> it wouldn't matter what necessarily unfolded, but that's sort of what's interesting about it. I guess the the, the, the potential danger of that, Huggy, he's a very high-profile person uh, promoting what I think are irresponsible messages about the game. They get through, though, don't mm. they? We are starting to see... Well, everything in the world seems to be binary now. The distance debate's starting to go the same way, isn't it? Every time you put something up on Twitter or write something as I did last week about um, distance and courses and the whole Great piece, hairball huh? of all of the, mm, that, that, yeah. that involved, they come out of the woodwork, don't they, people, with the counter-argument of, you know, let's go, you want to go back to Hickory and there seems to be that Chamblee's side of the argument is making some headway, it feels like. Am I right about that, or am I just being bleak because I'm old? Um, no, I don't know. I, don't, I think you're. Um, I think we're fighting the good fight. I mean, I th- and I think uh, you, your column last week is a perfect example of the, the reach that uh, things like that have now. I mean, the fact that you provoked those reactions is, mm. is, is, indicates that to me. I mean, I, I think you keep going, um, and more and more people are going to see it. People who have previously listened and read the other side of the argument and nothing else are, are suddenly th- being made to think there might be an opposing view out there. So, you know, we've got to keep going, I think. Mm. Will we win, Log, or is it a losing discussion? Will the machine ultimately roll over us? It, there's this, I think I mentioned this last time, but there's this window closing on a rollback or of some sort, whatever type of rollback it ends up being, because... The RNA and the USGA have got some power right now, but there couldn't come. A, there will come a time very shortly where the professional tours will just go. Well, we just don't recognise that power anymore. I reckon we're almost there, and already. And the so the, that window is closing rapidly, and uh, the the game is already bifurcated quite dramatically. The professionals play a completely different game, and uh, it, it's they can just continue on that course and. So, do we care about that entertainment product not being the same as the game that we all play? Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I do, and I think a lot of people do. But does it uh, affect us? I and mean, we can still play. And we quite freely and quite often do go and play with persimmons and blades and old balls. Nothing stops us from doing. Well, that. that's right. And but I'm not talking about even if you don't if you don't bifurcate the professional game still is already so unfamiliar and and so uh, foreign to to the game that we play that. It may as well just continue down that track to be this pure entertainment. Sort of like the drug Olympics. Let them take whatever they want. Let's see what they can do. Yeah. Like they can they can put their, you know, 10-yard markers down the fairway and everything. Actually, a mate of mine had a, had a great idea the other day. He said, oh, the way these golf courses on TV seem to be going, I'm surprised they don't maybe 
sprinkle a bit of gold leaf into the sand bucket so that over the time <laughs> the, the fairways all start to sparkle golden. Sort of. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> that was a great idea. But uh, yeah, that's I think that's where we're going with these these this entertainment product, which is just going to be less and less like golf as we know it, and uh, more and more just like a video game. Do we? Yeah, week weekend warriors. Sorry, I was just going to say the 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 fear of bifurcation um, in the RNA and the USGA that that prevents them from actually one of the reasons that prevents them from doing anything is just nonsense. I mean, I've had this discussion with more than one chief executive of the RNA, and uh, you know they've created bifurcation by doing absolutely nothing mm. because, as as Adrian just said, the, the the game that the pros play has never been more divorced from the game that you and I play. Mm. And they've done that's been created by them doing nothing. So let's try the other. Let's try the opposite and do something. Well, the crazy the crazy thing is, Huggy. There's a business case to be made for bifurcation. I think. Mm. Mm -hmm. I don't see that the manufacturers actually have anything to lose. Yes, that would create work for them. They'd have to come up with a whole bunch of new marketing ideas and a whole bunch of other stuff. But they can sell the pro equipment to the amateurs who want it. And we've got plenty of evidence to say that there's enough out there who would buy it to make it worth their while. And, of course, on the flip side, it's going to save them a bunch of money in endorsement. There's no need to well, here's have the thing that hundreds on your I, books I if, if you can have just a couple. This is the last thing I was on, but um, I've, asked, I've asked a bunch of pros this same question over the last few months, and they all say the same thing. Um, how many clubs, I asked them, do you average using in you know every round of golf it, it, obviously sometimes the the makeup of the nine changes a little bit depending on the golf course but that seems to be the number that, that they only use about nine clubs every time they go out they're not using anything like 14 no. so you know that's the, the last thing the equipment manufacturers want to hear of course so you know the, the if we were only if everybody was using you know a maximum of 10 clubs instead of 14 they're going to make a lot less money how many more people would you get playing golf as well if if it was only ten clubs to there's to get your, into there's golf? There's your business case. I just this that thing that drives me nuts that people beginners the people who least need the like mm. little distance increments you get from having fourteen clubs the people who least need that are the people who are brainwashed into thinking they need to buy fourteen clubs because they've got to have every tiny little advantage, which is absolute nonsense yeah. and. It costs thousands of dollars to get a 14-club set these days. And then, of course, as we know, you you've got, got to put bag, it into a big bag and the then finder, the big bag has to fit on a buggy and oh, yeah. that's that becomes golf. And that's actually financially pretty prohibitive to, yeah. to get into golf, whereas well, a 10-club set in a very small bag that you just sling over your shoulder. It limits the scope of who can play, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, it seems to me, Huggy, and this is one of my criticisms of the manufacturers and all of the manufacturers as a pool, they do nothing to grow the size of the pie the golf pie, as in encouraging people to play the game. They only fight over the existing customer base, which is shrinking. Now, they will carry yeah. on about their stakeholders and their shareholders and their responsibilities in that, you know, in their whole business um, thing that they, they have the responsibilities to shareholders. In reality, they're doing their shareholders a disservice by doing nothing at all to grow the actual numbers of golfers. None of the manufacturers do anything to bring people into the game. And I guarantee you I'll get responses from all of them saying, well, we do this, this, and this. None of them do anything meaningful on the grander scale well, well, to bring people yeah, to the game. They, they kind of neglect the people who are already in the game as well because, I mean, they, 
it seems to me, I mean, I can't remember I'm at, last time I bought a set of clubs, but the, the everything is just so expensive mm-hmm. these days. So how often are, is the average guy actually spending money on golf clubs? Well, I think the driver, the I mean, drivers, the wedges and the putters is where less, the money is in clubs, but it's not yeah, a patch on balls. Yeah, less and less on. Yeah. Balls are the big money. They're in the billions. Mm. Clubs are yeah. hundreds of millions and they kind of drive the whole thing a little bit. But people will change their driver. Quite often, fairway woods a little less often. Wedges reasonably often. People will go and buy a new wedge or whatever. But sets of irons, mm, not that often, I don't yeah. think. So yeah, that's not can. where the money yeah. is. But uh, yeah, but that's my criticism. You know, let, let's. And this has been my sort of this is my broad solution to this bifurcation thing is that the RNA and the USGA get together, give the give a, a pool of money to the manufacturers to compensate them for their so called lost business. But in return, they all agree to put a percentage of money into some sort of a fund which independently, internationally, is spent marketing and growing the game beyond its existing players so that everybody ultimately wins because the manufacturers Ooh, You're asking a lot there. Well, I am. Who's the communist But is it now? not that big? Is it not that big an issue, though, Huggy? If we continue down the road... Oh, no, I'm not saying you're wrong. Yeah, no. Yeah, I'm with you, but getting them to do that, well, good luck. Well, this is where the compensation's important. They can't say... Uh, you're hurting our business if what the RNA and USGA says, right, we're going to take a bunch of the money we make out of the game, we're going to give you a portion of that to compensate you for the short-term loss in in um, sales or profits or whatever that you claim you're going to have because if we change the regulations. Because people are going to lose less balls or something? Is that what's going to happen? I don't as soon know as they what the business case is. People, it's just, it makes what no it sense What ultimately is, is lazy. But I, I think the flaw in your thinking there, Rod, is that the USGA and RNA, no matter, they just don't have even close to the amount of money that would even create an impression on these manufacturers, right? Uh, I th- no, I think, they, you, I think they do. you really make a case for the, the RNA and the USGA giving money to... <laughs> okay, to so this is the point. This is clearly going to be the sticky point. Especially that amount of money. And as offensive as it is, I think it's the only way forward for the game to remain as a united force. If the RNA and the USGA say, that's it, we've changed the parameters of the ball, exactly what you outlined earlier is what's going to happen, I think, Like The professional tools will say, well, that's terrific. We're not playing by those We're going to go anymore. our own way. We're going to have our own rules. And that division in the game, ultimately, and it might settle in 20 years, as did cricket, but I don't see that being good for the game in the short term because the resources of the professional tours outweigh the resources of the RNA and USGA significantly. And so they will, a bit like VHS and Beta, and VHS, everybody in television knows VHS is the inferior system. By far, it, it crushed Beta in the first two years of those two technologies being released. And that's the sort of scenario you risk if you don't do this in some sort of conciliatory way. And there's no other way for it to happen but for money to change hands. And I find that as offensive as the next person. And isn't there the professional tour's influence on the game is way out of proportion with what they're intending? They, they, of course, it is. They don't actually. I mean, they're there for their members and running running a tour to make a ridiculous amount of money for their members. They actually have nothing in their remit that is concerned with the common golfer. No, but they their influence and and we're talking about you know obviously very small percentage of the the golfing population are professional golfers, uh, but the influence they have on amateur golf 
is just way out of proportion, and they're not even meaning to have that influence. It's, no, you're right. It's not a single people part buy of into their intention. Yeah. They're not asked to buy into it. They just do. Just to remind people, Huggy, and I think most of us golfers forget this. I forget this every year until I turn up again at the Australian Open or one of the tournaments here in Australia, just how big the gap is between us and the professional <laughs> players. I reckon they're about 100 yards in front of most of us. On average, and the average touring pros, not the long guys, the average guys are probably 100 yards ahead of us off the tee in yeah. terms of when medium range when golfers. standing over a chip, they're not even thinking about <laughs> sculling it. <laughs> we, were at, we were at the lakes a couple of years ago, Huggy, and on the ninth hole, there's a little par three, there's like a lion's mouth bunker, and one of the players had come up yeah, short, yeah. and Logan and I are standing there looking. I can't even remember who it was. It wasn't like one of the name players, but he's a pro. And Logan turns around and he says, he's not even thinking about that bunker. <laughs> Like all we could think of is sculling it straight into the face of the bugger. That's the only yeah. shot in my mind. He's not even thinking about it, says Logan. He was quite serious, but as it came out of his mouth, he realised what he was saying. It's just how stupid it was. But but the gap is enormous, isn't it, Huggy? I don't think people realise just how different the game, the professional. Well, play. it is, and certainly in the distance. But I mean, you know, to touch on that, another aspect of that subject, I, I, can, I blame America for the, the other sticking point when it comes to, to reining the ball in, because the last time that golf rained the ball in, there was a rollback when the rest of us changed from the small ball to the big ball. Mm. It, it didn't affect America. They they didn't even notice. Uh, and now if we roll it back, it's going to be everybody. And there, I, th- I think, I honestly think that America is the sticking point on this oh, and they're to blame mm. for it to a large extent as to why nothing is happening. Yeah. Just, just to offend an entire nation in one fell swoop. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Nicely done, Huggy. I think you're right. Although, and this this always happens. I think those of us who are campaigning for it, for the most part, accept that pragmatically, whilst we would like the ball rolled back across the board, really the only practical way forward is to roll it back for the elite level only. I think that answer oh, yeah, that, that yeah, solves I, I, most I, yeah. of the problems of the game. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but it's only for the professional. I don't know why Joe Average would care. Although, as we know, as Ian Andrew told us. It's a growing problem in amateur golf, yeah. the distance the ball You do goes. have people in amateur golf, just even people who are off like 10 or 12 who can hit it enormous yeah, distances off in the wrong direction. Absolutely. Uh, driving into houses and onto roads and doing all sorts of crazy things. So there's, there's – they're just – when you really break it down, there doesn't seem to me how an intelligent person could come up with any notion that there was a sensible way forward other than to restrict the distance that the ball goes. I can't see a, a, an argument on the other side that makes any sense. Well, while you're at it, I think you've got to reduce the size of the drivers yes, for, for professionals as well. Well, yeah. essentially, you make it a three-wood game. I mean, <clears throat> let's not pretend like they don't hit their three-woods far enough. How, do, how far did Stenson hit that? Well, it was a four-wood, I think, he had that <clears throat> they sort of yeah. somehow he hit well, 300 yards without too much trouble. The issue with three-woods, as I understand it, is that there's all of the regulations apply to drivers and all the testing applies to drivers. There's no testing on the three-woods, so they all juiced up. Yeah, but like, the one thing it does do, you can't carry the three-woods the way you can the driver, and that's been the change in the game. So well, we spoke with Bryden McPherson on the thing about golf and just asked him his carry distance with the driver, and he said about 295 yards. Beyond that, he might be able to carry it, but he has to think about it. 295 yards is about 270-odd metres. Mm-hmm. So if you're a, an amateur golfer out there thinking about that, that's carry so if there's a bunker at 270 metres, a fairway bunker, on one of the holes that you play at your home course, imagine standing on the tee and not having to think about whether or not you could carry that. Well, I'll be thinking about it for my second shot, maybe. Maybe, That's- yeah. Um, and that really brings it into perspective. And Bryden is an average length hitter. He said he's in probably the the 
the the top portion of the bottom third. That's right. Yeah. So he's he's an average kind of length hitter. So that's sort of how much it's changed. Uh, and that, of course, you know, and that that we we do ourselves a disservice by joining in the discussion, which puts distance at such a makes it such an important element of the game. When in fact, that's the whole point of the argument. Yet that's too one dimensional a way to think about the game. The joy of the game, Huggy, as you would have seen this past week, is when it's on the ground, isn't it? The real highlights are around yeah, the greens. The game is, it gets more and more interesting the longer the ball spends on the ground. There's no yeah. doubt about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. On that happy note, we might draw a close. Did I miss anything, Logue? Was there any, anybody you wanted to snipe at that you haven't got in? You've so far, Gilhans and Tom Doak have, have have received the treatment. Well, we get to see Aronimic this week with the uh, KPMG um, Women's PGA, which will so, be fantastic. Which is another right. another Gilhans reno- uh, restoration um, at Aronimic, which seems to have rough from. Boundary fence to boundary fence, all manicured, perfectly manicured turf that they have to go in and quaff with, or quiff with, uh, with rakes Coif. and. and How do you um, say that? I don't know. It's the thing you do to Donald Trump's hair. I think they, oh. they have to do that to the rough. <laughs> uh, they get in there with air blowers and and rakes and things like that, uh, and these aren't playing surfaces. It's way off the playing surface. I'd like again. I'd love to see what. Uh, Gil, have I can't Gil wait for Gil to come and sit in this studio with one of his giant hands to grab you by the <laughs> neck and choke the What, what constraints again. were in play that caused him to have to put up with that? Because Again, because it's so different to his own That's original right. work. Exactly. There, there does seem to be. A, but a but here we are again, Wingfoot, Aronimic, the photos I've seen of Merriam, TPC Boston, all these courses- they're just like completely Chandler, choked you, out with you've lined up all your counter-arguments before you went public, which is great. <laughs> Last thing, Huggy, I just wanted to touch on this quickly. It was fantastic, I thought, to see Mel Reid win on the LPGA mm. finally at the weekend. I saw her win the Vic Open a few years ago, and what a fantastic player and just a terrific character. Uh, the women's event this week, including Mel Reid, will be the highlight, I think. You must be looking forward to it, I'd imagine, Huggy, because that women's PGA tournament in the last five or six years has, has since teaming with the PGA – has started to go to golf courses with some credibility. And it's been the making mm. of it, Huggy. There's the business case for mm-hmm. going to good golf courses, isn't there? Yeah, and the defending champion this week is Scotland's Hannah Green, of course. <laughs> I teed that up by mistake for you, Huggy. I forgot about that. Uh, yes, Scotland's yeah, Hannah yeah. Green, of course. So that'll be the tournament to uh, to watch this week. It'll be fantastic to see. Huggy, always great to have you on board. Uh, you had another fan... Yesterday, Emma Ballard mentioned that she listened to the episode with you and enjoyed that. So hopefully, she's listening again. Good on you, Emma. Shout out to Emma Ballard. Yeah. So you've got at least one fan. You've lost. You've lost Chambly, but you've picked up Ballard. So yeah, yeah. I, and before you go, I, I did actually want to talk a little bit more about the tenth hole at North Berwick, which was the the scene of one of my six Ooh. holes in one. But nice. you know, maybe you don't want to talk too much about that. I came very close to a hole in one there, Huggy. So we've I've not played it. <laughs> fist bump with that. Uh, how many? Oh. No, Huggy's the only one of the two of us who's played both Barnboogle and North Berwick. <laughs> Okay. There you go. Hey, so I managed to get that in as well. <laughs> Nicely to, done. Uh, just Nicely to, done. Uh, yeah. It is a special spot, though, Huggy, isn't it? They put a plaque where you it's, where you it, hit your tee shot from. Uh, well, where I'm from, I'm from a, a town near North Berwick, and there's a bit of a rivalry going, and it's very difficult to get people to where I come from to say nice things about North Berwick and vice versa. But if you twist my arm up my back, yeah, yes, it is. It's a terrific golf course, and. It's great fun to play. Did the other five aces come on bland holes as well? (laughs) On the low scale? On any other course, it would be an amazing par three. It's just, it may be not the most standout par three of the the ones at North Berwick, which Uh, are all pretty amazing. Six huggy. Nicely done. All in competition. You would have had others just in practice. Uh, No, no. Two of them were in foursomes, playing in foursomes events. So 
my my both times my friends were going around saying, "Yeah, we had we made a one." <laughs> <laughs> That's a very huggy outcome, isn't it? To have a hole in one in foursomes and be forced yeah. to share the glory of nature. I think Clates has had twenty or something. Yeah. Every, oh, time, ridiculous. every time I yeah. look, he's holing a fairway wood. Yeah. You know, he's playing with persimmon. He's holing him from 180 yards or he's having a hole in one. Or Often on holes that he's designed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. Yeah, well, clearly he's just doing it for his own good. Enough out of us. Lovely to chat, Huggy. Thanks for taking the time, mate. Always appreciate it. My pleasure. And Logue, mm, it was all right to have you along today. Oh, but thank, thank you. That's generous of you. I tell you what, today you can take the weight and you can send out the tweet, which reminds me, talk oh, sure. where they can find us quickly. Uh, they can find you at Rod underscore Murray, me at Adrian Logue on Twitter. And Huggy at at John Huggin underscore. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. No, 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 no underscore. underscore just, just John Huggin. John Huggin. The, the one and only. The John Huggin. John Huggin, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, this podcast and many other great podcasts can be found at TalkingGolf.com. They're all brought to you by the wonderful people at TalkingGolfSociety.com.au forward slash TalkingGolf to get a special old course something a little bit later about that. Thanks for your time. Uh, and we'll be back again next week to do it all again on episode 53 of the Good Good Golf Podcast.